Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be covering the murder of Lynetta White in Lexington, Kentucky. Let's get right to it. In the United States, the percentage of women who are handed down a death sentence is extremely low. A whopping 98% of those receiving the ultimate punishment are men, leaving only 2% of those on death row female, according to Statista.com. And women whose death sentences are actually carried out is also rare. Between 1608 and 2020, there were 16,018 confirmed executions, However, only 575 of them were women, and since 1976, only 17 women have been executed in the United States, all according to deathpenaltyinfo.org. And in the state of Kentucky, there is only one female currently awaiting execution on death row. What exactly did she do to end up there? It was 1998 in Lexington, Kentucky. Virginia Cottle was 38 years old. She had long struggled with addiction, but at the time was reportedly clean and sober. She was starting a new life. She had met a man named Stephen White, and Stephen also struggled with substance abuse, but he was sober. According to an episode of Deadly Women, the pair fell in love, and Stephen wasn't the only one in the White family who loved Virginia. You see, his mother, Lynetta White, loved Virginia, too. Lynetta White was the future mother-in-law we all hoped for. She was so proud of her son for kicking the habit. She supported the relationship between Virginia and her son. And when I say support, I mean in every aspect. She paid Virginia to come and clean her house and do tasks at her home. She gave her the warmest welcome into the family, despite Virginia's history of drug abuse. She did everything in her power to help the pair. She wanted them to succeed, and she would help in absolutely any way she could. That was just who Lynetta White was, the type of woman who would give the shirt off her very back if she thought you needed it, the hype man in your corner who cheered for every win and helped pick you up after every loss. She was the kind of human this world could use a whole lot more of. So when Stephen popped the question and asked Virginia to be his wife, it was no surprise that Lynetta was right there cheering them on. She was so happy her son had not only found sobriety, he had found someone to spend his life with. Lynetta was so supportive of the union, she offered to have the wedding right there at her home. See, Lynetta was 73. She had worked hard her whole life, and her home and lifestyle reflected that. She had finally gotten to a place in her life where she could afford some of the finer things. She was financially comfortable. 
and she loved to share what she had worked so hard for with others, especially her son. So without hesitation, she was ready to help the lovebirds with the wedding and help them get on their feet. Her son, Stephen, had been rocking his recovery. He had a steady job. He was reliable and dependable. She knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was sober. And Stephen loved his mama. And did she ever love her boy? Everyone was looking forward to the big day. But there would be no fancy white dresses or cutting of the cake, no exchanging of vows. That wedding would never happen. Virginia Caudill got a phone call in early March of 1998. It was about her ex, and it's on this phone call that she learned that he had tragically taken his own life. This threw her into a tailspin. She was devastated, and old habits die hard. Virginia didn't just fall off the wagon. Oh no, she did a triple sow cow and landed headfirst right back in the middle of her addiction. She fell hard and fast and right back into full-fledged use of crack cocaine. She showed up at Stephen's job and showed out. Stephen told her in no uncertain terms that she needed to check into a rehab this very second and get help, but she didn't. And Stephen was done with a capital D. He'd worked so hard for his sobriety. There was no way in hell he was going to let her or anything else for that matter come between him and his recovery. He called the wedding off. And you would think calling off the wedding would have been a wake-up call for her. But it wasn't. Just two days after Stephen called things off, Virginia Caudill did something so reprehensible and evil, it would land her as the only woman sitting on Kentucky's death row. When Virginia did that triple sow cow off the wagon, she had ended up at a drug den to score some crack. And it was there she ran into an old acquaintance, Jonathan Wayne Goforth. Jonathan and Virginia hadn't seen each other in 15 years, but that didn't stop the pair from bonding over their apparent love for crack. And Jonathan, well, he was no choir boy. In fact, he was a con man who would do just about anything for that next high. Jonathan already had a criminal record dating back to the 80s for burglary and robbery. This was a reunion straight from the pits of hell. Jonathan and Virginia started using heavily, quickly burning through all the cash either of them had. They're all out of money and drugs and fiending for more. So they were both racking their brains for the easiest way to score. Virginia Cotto had a plan. She'd just call Lynetta. She knew Lynetta had a soft spot for her and plenty of cash. This would be easy money. But Stephen had already called his mother, told her the wedding was off and what had happened. He had pleaded with his mother not to give Virginia any money or to help in any way. And as I said before, Lynetta White was a generous and loving woman. When she got that call from Virginia, she could hear the desperation in her voice. It pulled at her heartstrings. Y'all know Virginia didn't call her and say, Hey, I'm fresh out of crack and need a 20 spot to go re-up. 
No, no. She called Lynetta and told her since Stephen had called things off and thrown her out of the house, she had nowhere to go. And if she didn't get $30 for a motel room, she'd be out on the cold, hard street. She had Lynetta right where she wanted her. Lynetta's heart broke for the woman she was so eager to call her daughter-in-law. And so, against the advice of her son, Lynetta agreed to give Virginia the $30 for the hotel room. So Jonathan Goforth drove Virginia over to pick up the cash on March 14, 1998, according to court documents. And of course, she didn't spend that $30 on a hotel room. She spent it on crack instead. But that $30 isn't enough to keep the pair high for very long. So another plan is hatched. And just the very next day, on March 15, 1998, they go back to Lynetta's home. Virginia knocked on the door with Jonathan Goforth hiding just out of sight. It was three o'clock in the morning. Lynetta obviously wasn't expecting anyone and was likely in a deep sleep. But she fumbled her way to the door, wondering who in the hell could be knocking at this hour. And there Virginia stood again on her doorstep. She told Lynetta she needed money for a room again, but this time she wanted $50. According to court documents, when Lynetta turned, likely to retrieve the money yet again, Jonathan appeared from just around the corner where he had been hiding by the garage, and the two forced their way inside Lynetta's home. $50 was never the plan. They needed more. They easily overpowered the 73-year-old woman, and once inside, they began to beat Lynetta in the head with a hammer, striking her over and over. And as Lynetta lay bleeding on the floor, they stepped over her body and ransacked her home, taking any items of value they could find, two guns, a mink coat, and jewelry. They are callous enough to even snatch the jewelry from Lynetta's body as she lie there on the floor, still bleeding. They then wrapped her body in a rug and put her in the trunk of her own car. They drove to a desolate field. Goforth drove Lynetta's car with her body in the trunk, and Caudill followed behind him, according to court documents. And as if what they had already done wasn't brutal and heartless enough, they poured gasoline on Lynetta's body and the car, set it ablaze, and drove off. It seemed that while the pair have mastered brutality and straight-up evil, they're definitely lacking in the brains department. They started pawning Lynetta's valuables left and right, leaving a trail that would lead investigators right back to them. But they didn't care because fueling their drug habit was more important than anything else. According to court documents, the police questioned Virginia Caudill about what had happened to Lynetta early on in the investigation, but she maintained that she didn't know anything and that she was with Jonathan Goforth on March 15th, but they definitely didn't bludgeon a 73-year-old woman to death. Police attempted to talk to Goforth, but he wasn't home. The investigators left a message asking Goforth to contact them in regards to Lynetta's murder with someone who was at his residence. But he didn't call or show up down at the station. Shocking, right? The pair was surprised by how quickly the heat was on them, so they decided to make a run for it. According to court documents, they first spent a few nights at a cabin near Harrington Lake, 35 miles from Lexington. They then fled to Ocala, Florida, 
followed by Gulfport, Mississippi. It was there in Gulfport that the pair must have gotten tired of each other's company because Caudill left Gulfport in Mississippi and she headed over to New Orleans. The two managed to evade police for an eight whole months. And while these sadistic shitbirds are on the run, police are building their case. Remember those people who Caudill and Goforth pawned Lynetta's belongings to? Well, when they started to learn the gruesome details of exactly how these two had acquired these items, they came forward and turned the items over to police. And some of these folks knew good and damn well these items were stolen, and they didn't so much mind that. But the brutal murder of a 73-year-old woman was just too far. They wanted to see the pair pay for what they had done to Lynetta. But nobody had heard from Goforth or Caudill. Where could they be? On November 11, 1998, a woman named Kelly Lyons was jailed on a simple shoplifting charge in New Orleans, Louisiana. And why the hell am I telling you about a simple shoplifting charge when we're over here looking for a pair of murderers? See, other inmates at that Louisiana jail started taking a hard look at Kelly, and they began to notice something. Kelly Lyons looked a hell of a lot like a woman they had just seen on an episode of America's Most Wanted. But the woman on that episode wasn't named Kelly Lyons. Her name was Virginia Caudill, and she was wanted for murder. These inmates began to voice their concerns to jail staff. And after staff take a hard look, they realized the inmates were right. Kelly Lyons didn't exist, and they actually had a wanted fugitive hiding right under their noses. It turned out that a mistake had been made when they had originally ran her fingerprints, and nothing had came back. But she's fingerprinted again, and bingo, it is confirmed Kelly Lyons is actually Virginia Caudill. One down, one to go. Caudill is questioned yet again. But this time, her story changed, and she made an admission. She was there the night Lynetta was murdered, but she had nothing to do with the murdering part. No, no, that was all Jonathan Wayne Goforth. That was her story, and she was sticking to it. It wasn't long, and police had their second suspect. Goforth was arrested in Gulfport on December 8, 1998. And surprise, surprise, he tells a different story. I'm so shocked. Didn't see that one coming. He hadn't bludgeoned Lynetta to death. I mean, he was there, but he didn't murder Lynetta either. It was an unknown black male and caught ill who had done the murdering part. I mean, these two haven't even been extradited back to Kentucky yet, and the finger pointing has begun. Man, that was quick. It was her, it was him, and Goforth even tried to implicate an unknown blackmail. And let's be clear, there was no evidence of this blackmail. He didn't exist, but that didn't stop Goforth from trying to pin it on him. And since neither of the two are coming off the truth, the decision is made for Caudill and Goforth to be tried together. The trial began in early 2000, two years after Lynetta was murdered in her home. And it's during the trial that even more gruesome details were brought to light. Lynetta White's attack was even more brutal than previously reported. According to court documents, she had been struck up to 15 times with a hammer-like object, which had caused her skull to fracture in multiple places. And as if that wasn't bad enough, 
According to court documents, her body was so charred by the fire Caudill and Goforth had set in that car that the remains of this sweet and gentle woman had to be pried from the trunk and she couldn't be immediately identified. And that location where Lynetta's car was found with her body inside the trunk? It was a place that was familiar to Virginia Caudill because Stephen White, Lynetta's son and Caudill's former fiancé, had taken her there. It was a place that was special to Stephen, according to court documents. This bitch, she not only took Stephen's mother and the woman who cared so much for her away, she left her body burning in a place that had meaning to Stephen. If that's not cold-blooded, then I don't know what is. It seems she not only wanted Lynetta's money, she wanted to inflict the maximum amount of pain on the family who tried to help her. And the finger-pointing continued at trial. Virginia Cottle claimed in the early morning hours of March 15th, she had gone to Lynetta's home looking for money. Jonathan Goforth was there waiting by the garage. And when Lynetta went to retrieve the money, he suddenly attacked without warning. And that Lynetta had pleaded with her, please help me, Virginia. Cottle goes on to say that she couldn't help because Goforth had bound her hands and placed her in a bedroom while he single-handedly beat Lynetta to death. Caudill also claimed she was tied up as Goforth ransacked the house and wrapped Lynetta in a rug. He had forced Caudill to help him get the body into the trunk. And as far as igniting the car with the body inside of it, she had no part in that either. It was all Goforth. She was afraid for her life. She was a victim too, an innocent bystander. I don't know about you, but my bullshit meter is screaming in the red. Remember, Caudill sat down with police early on in the investigation, and not only did she lie like a cheap rug, no evidence was found that she had been tied up. There were no ligature marks around her wrists. I mean, that would have been obvious. Not only that, but she's the one who knew Lynetta. She's the one who knew exactly where Lynetta kept all of her valuables. After all, Lynetta had been gracious enough to pay her to come clean and help out around the house. She's the whole ass reason Goforth knew anything about Lynetta White. She's the only one who knew the location Lynetta's car was found in. And if she was so scared, why in the hell did she go on the run with this guy over multiple states? This story she's telling now in front of the court is not the same story she told the girls on cell block B, not even close. While she was locked up, it seemed Caudill liked to talk about the events of March 15th. One jailhouse informant testified that Caudill told her that she had gone to Lynetta's to get some money for dope. In this version, Lynetta said no, so Caudill struck her twice in the head with a clock that she pulled off the wall. Another informant testified that Caudill told her that she had actually broken into the home to steal money to buy drugs, but Lynetta caught her, and when she did, she killed her, stole her guns and jewelry, and set fire to her car. This informant went on to say that Lynetta had begged for her life, saying, help me, why are you doing this to me? Hmm, sound familiar? And there's one more version of events. Jonathan Wayne Goforth is up next. And in his tale, when Lynetta answered the door in the middle of the night, Caudill told her they were having car trouble and needed to use a phone. Once Lynetta let them inside, Caudill demanded money. 
Lynetta refused. It's then that Caudill pulled a roofer's hammer, presumably out of nowhere, and struck Lynetta. You see, it was Goforth's hammer, but he hadn't given it to her, and he wasn't even aware she had taken it from his truck. He asked Caudill why she had hit her, but she didn't give an answer and instead continued to hit Lynetta repeatedly in the head with the hammer. So he went into the living room, popped a squat on the couch, and pondered what he should do next. Stopping the attack and calling 911 wasn't what he came up with. He just sat there on the couch as Caudill bludgeoned Lynetta to death, ransacked the house, loaded the stolen property into the truck, and wrapped Lynetta's body in the carpet. He does admit to helping carry Lynetta's body to the garage and putting her in the trunk. But that was at Caudill's request. None of this was his idea. He also claimed Caudill is the one who doused the car with gas and set it on fire. All this according to court documents. There are three sides to every story. Yours, mine, and the truth. The truth of what happened lies somewhere between all of Caudill and Goforth's tall tales. But no matter who came up with the idea or who delivered the first blow, the fact is they were both involved and responsible for the brutal murder of a completely innocent woman. It came as no surprise to anyone that Virginia Caudill and Jonathan Goforth were both convicted on all counts. First-degree burglary, first-degree robbery, second-degree arson, tampering with evidence, and first-degree murder. During the sentencing phase, Caudill's defense team claimed that her terrible childhood and years of drug abuse should be taken into consideration, and while she had scored gifted or genius on some aspects of her IQ test, on others she scored below average. Caudill was a different person once drugs took over. And while I have no doubt that's true, it doesn't excuse the brutal murder of a 73-year-old woman. And the judge agreed. Virginia Susan Caudill and her cohort, Jonathan Wayne Goforth, were both sentenced to death in a Kentucky courtroom on March 24, 2000. According to that episode of Deadly Women, Goforth smiled as he was sentenced. Caudill has filed multiple appeals, citing everything from ineffective counsel to prosecutorial misconduct and everything in between. She pled her case all the way up to Kentucky's Supreme Court. All of her appeals have been denied. She will likely spend the rest of her life right there on death row. But whether or not her sentence of execution will be carried out remains a question for Kentucky courts and lawmakers in the state. An execution hasn't been carried out in the state of Kentucky since 2008, and a death sentence hasn't even been handed down since 2014. And the reason? Well, there are multiple, but the most recent has to do with prisoners with intellectual disabilities. In July of 2019, according to the Courier-Journal, Dozens of death row inmates filed a motion to take the death penalty off the table because the state of Kentucky had no provisions to protect prisoners with intellectual disabilities. If a prisoner with intellectual disabilities declined further appeals, they could be executed. Franklin Circuit Judge 
Philip Shepard heard the motion and ruled that the regulation was invalid because it didn't automatically suspend an execution when the state corrections department's internal review showed a condemned person had an intellectual disability. The U.S. Supreme Court categorically prohibits the execution of intellectually disabled persons, he said, again, according to the Courier-Journal. A bill was introduced in the Kentucky House of Representatives in March of 2021, sponsored by Representative Chad McCoy, with provisions to protect those convicted with mental disorders. Under the provision, defendants would be ineligible for the death penalty if they had a documented history of schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder, or delusional disorder at the time of the offense. Representative McCoy called the illnesses included in the bill very serious. The House overwhelmingly passed the bill with bipartisan support, all this according to deathpenaltyinfo.org. It has a few more steps to go, but it seems to have the support it needs. Will Kentucky start carrying out executions after this bill becomes law? That remains to be seen. Virginia Susan Cottle is the lone woman sitting on death row at the Kentucky Correctional Institute for Women, but it seems she hasn't given up on finding her a man. I did a little digging on old Virginia and what she's up to these days and discovered multiple profiles on sites for prison pen pals, one of them being a site dedicated to female prison pals. Her photo is there in her profile in prison garb, trying to show as much leg as possible. Her bio reads, I seek someone who is willing to help me pass my time in prison. I would like to get to know someone who is interested in getting to know me. We can get to know each other. Oh, I'm so glad we're just all over here getting to know each other. It goes on to say, I am fun and loving. I also enjoy listening to music. I would like to hear from anyone who is interested in my friendship. I mean, we all know how your friendship with Lynetta ended. It's a hard pass from me. And here's where it gets a little spicy. I mean, as spicy as it gets on death row. There's a 20 question section where Kato listed the age at which she lost her virginity, her favorite sexual position, what her adult entertainer name would be. She chose Raven, by the way the best part of her body, and that she's afraid of snakes. I mean, they do have mirrors in prison. Has she checked one lately? Because she's a snake of the two-legged variety, the most deadliest of them all. It's all disgusting enough to gag a maggot. I'll post it on my Facebook and Instagram in case you too feel like vomiting in your mouth. Lynetta White was born on November 20th, 1924 in Danville, Kentucky. She was a mother who loved her children and supported her son through all life's ups and downs. A beautiful and generous soul who did nothing but try and help the person who brutally took her away from everyone who knew and loved her. She had worked hard and finally reached her golden years. She should have spent the rest of her life sitting on a porch, sipping an ice cold drink, watching her grandchildren play, and enjoying everything she had worked so hard for. She was loved by many for her kind and gentle spirit. She will always be remembered as the generous and loving woman she was. 
More information and photos will be posted on my Facebook at least of these and my Instagram at least underscore of these new episodes drop every Thursday. So make sure to hit that subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.